Welcome to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Lakshtata. I'm here at the festival. It's day one. And the session you're about to hear is called Being Remo. Remo Fernandez in conversation with Sanjoy K. Roy. better chance uh, than to have a conversation uh, with Remo. This is the book and I hope you all will go out and buy it. All of those of you who were rockers and loved Remo's music, anybody who visited Goa or Bombay, uh, there wasn't a time that I think we, oh, we spend without listening to Remo and having to get up onto our feet in Goa, both Punita who loves to dance and all of us and I think Nina and everybody here uh, would would do anything to listen to Remo. Remo, welcome, and thank you for this magnificent tome. A really I, fabulous book. It is I who may say thank you for inviting me here, Sanjoy. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure being here. As I as always say, I've always wanted to attend a literary festival, and it's the very first one I'm attending, and I never thought that I would attend my first festival as an author, but here I am. I don't... Uh, it's amazing. It's an amazing trip for me. Can I just ask my colleagues to put this fan off behind me? Please, this one. It's blowing my golden tresses. Well, my white tresses. <laughs> Remo Goa. Uh, way back, even before Goa has become independent, it was still a Portuguese colony, which is where you were born. Set the stage for us. Tell us a little bit about what life was there in Goa for you as a kid. A sort of not quite integrated into India, but much closer to Portugal, which was so many thousands of uh, miles away, but a much closer association. Well, not only was it not integrated into India, I didn't even know what India was or where India was. Okay, I was a kid of eight only when the Portuguese left from Goa. And all I knew is that uh, Goa was Goa and Goa was Portugal at the same time. Aqui é Portugal, used to say. Here it's Portugal. And uh, Portugal was this land of milk and honey far, far, far away, where everybody was fair-skinned and perfect and beautiful. And uh, it's only when I was eight years old that there were rumors going around that there was going to be war because India was going to come and take over Portugal. So I'm sorry, it was going to come over and take over Goa. And for a child of eight, you know, that's, uh, you know, those are mysteries, absolute mysteries taking place. And on the next day, that was it. You know, Goa was India. And, uh, and in fact, you all drew out to Siolim thinking that maybe it'll be safer to be in what was then Siolim village. Yes, it was not Siolim. We went to a maternal grandmother's village, which is Parra, which is not too, too far from Siolim. But yes, we went there. And uh, in the afternoon, the next afternoon, we could hear bombs exploding in the distance. And we thought it was terrible fighting going on between the Portuguese and the Indians. And then a few days later, when we returned to Panjim, we came to know that it was, you know, that there was no fighting whatsoever. The bombs were the Portuguese uh, blowing up the bridges as they ran away, as they ran away to their ships and uh, took off for Portugal. 
and, and for aeroplanes and took off for Portugal. I was hoping that my school had been bombed, but it had not. It was the saddest part. What was so interesting in the book, and for those of you, my father was part of the uh, naval uh, aviation that was part of the takeover of Goa, but what I was see. so interesting was the governor um, played a crucial role in saving Goa from Portugal. Tell us a little bit about that and how, when he went to Portugal, he was then imprisoned, but then he came back to be yes. rewarded. I, I learned about all this much later, of course. He was an 82 year old man. No, he was 82 when he came back to Goa, but he had received orders from Salazar, who was the, the dictator of Portugal to destroy Goa, to uh, erase- Scorch earth policy there. Yeah, scorch and erase kind of policy you know, destroy every building that we built over there, every bridge that we built there, destroy the airport, destroy the radio station, destroy everything. And for once, this man disobeyed his dictatorial master. So when he went back to Portugal, he was put behind bars. And he was put behind bars and released only when the Salazar regime, you know, regime and, and his followers you know, collapsed. And that was after a long time. And then as a man of 82, he decided to return to Goa simply out of his love for this land which he had helped save. And he returned to Goa and he was given a, a hero's welcome by most people in Goa. And a handful of uh, misguided people out of ignorance received him with black flags at the airport without even knowing what he had suffered for the sake of Goa and Goans. And I feel sad, you know, because always behind hatred, behind uh, uh, intolerance, there is always ignorance. And it's these people's ignorance that made them receive him with black flags. When you all read the book, you'll read about what an idyllic life uh, Remo had in his beautiful little house. But he was also a very naughty boy. And at one point, there was an incident with a tomato. Oh my God, I was about three or four years old and my, and my parents went to the usual grocer and uh, just at my, I hated tomatoes. I never ate tomatoes at home, but just at my height, there was a case, there was a box of the juiciest, reddest, shining, tempting tomatoes. And, and I picked one and I put it in my pocket. And after the whole shopping session, as my parents were leaving, the, the grocer went up to my, to my father and spoke to him, you know, very confidentially. He said, Sr. Bernard, I just saw your son pocketing a tomato. It's nothing serious, but uh, you never know which one of our habits, which one of our actions can become a habit in future. So I'm just telling you, please don't tell him anything here. You know, don't embarrass him because you never know what an effect, you know, traumatic effect that can have also. But do speak to him at home. And my embarrassed father, of course, wanted to pay him for the tomato, but he refused to take any money. And when we went home, my father and mother told me many things, you know, about not picking up things and not putting them in the pocket and flicking them. And... Uh, I must say that I've never flicked anything in my life after that. There was, no, there was no beating, there was no scolding, there was just talk, there was just understanding and talk. 
And uh, the whole credit for how that episode was handled goes to the grocer and to my parents. I had nothing to, to do in it. I was just a three-year-old, uh, you know, tomato thief, that's all. I, I didn't have much to do in it, but. Your father, in fact, his father never used to allow him, never encouraged music. Yes. And yet he loved for you to take on music. I was really lucky about that, Sanjay. Uh, his father was a doctor who believed that uh, music, if taken as a profession, and he was right. The only, the only future that music had in Goa was for you to play in a dance band and you played for people's weddings and for dances. And what did that get you? The best dance band in Goa, Johnson and his Jolly Boys, they were called. And uh, at, in the middle of the wedding, in the middle of the dances, they had that dinner with the cooks and the waiters in the kitchen. And then they came out in their shuckskin jackets and uh, ties and bows and performed. So that's the only future that music had in Goa. And I guess my grandfather didn't want any of that for any of his sons. They had to be doctors like him or lawyers or engineers, you know, the usual respectable profession. But my father loved music and he picked up a lot of instruments on his own at our cousin's houses, whoever had instruments. He played the Portuguese guitar, the Spanish guitar, the flute, all, all by ear. And when I showed the musical inclination as a child, he was overjoyed and he encouraged me like crazy, you know, and encouraged me like crazy. And I was just lucky that my grandfather was not my father, but my father was my father because my father could have turned into a very, a very, I'm sorry, a very frustrated and bitter man and, uh, and refused to give me what his father didn't give him. But on the contrary, he gave me everything that his father did not give him. And uh, as a child, you know, you have whims every, every few weeks, every few months. You want to play the accordion one day, then you hear somebody playing the banjo, you want to play the banjo. And my dad used to go out and buy me every instrument, you know, towards which I showed a whim or a fancy. So by the age of 10, I could play a few instruments, quite a few instruments on my own. I was, I was just lucky, really lucky. And one of the things he wanted to do is have you read music, or formal music. Yes, because at that time it was anybody who didn't know how to read music was considered by a lot of people in society in Panjim as uh, decor shade. In Konkani, they say decor shade. Decor is a Portuguese word. The core, you know, decor means uh, by heart, and shade is like a master. He's a by heart master. You know, he cannot he cannot read music. He just plays by ear. And at that time. I used to believe that it was inferior not to, not to know how to read music. And after that, I realized that the people who, who cannot play music unless they are reading it are the ones who are musically deficient because, you know, because they can only reproduce something that somebody else has already written. It's like uh, you can only read poetry. You know, Shakespeare has already written it. So many poets have written it. So you can only read poetry, but you don't have any poetry in your heart. You cannot create your own poetry. You cannot, you cannot speak, you know, two sentences in a poetic way, you know, because there's no poetry in your heart in short. And the Beatles proved it because without knowing to read or write music, 
I mean, you know what they did. It was not just, I love you, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then when they went into Sgt. Peppers and Abbey Road, you know what kind of music they created. Uh, yeah, that was. And, and it was amazing that he continued to want you to learn and learn music from the masters. And when you went to one of these masters, what did he say to your father? He was Eloy Gormish, and he was the best guitarist in Goa. So when finally my father decided that uh, I could or I should learn music, uh, you know, to play the guitar without studying music, he decided to go to this guy called Eloy Gormish, who was the best guitarist in Goa, who also did not know how to read and write music. He just went to ask him to be my guitar teacher. And I must have been, I don't know, five, six or seven. Uh, and Eloy just asked me to take my, my little banjo and play a song or two songs and then three songs and four songs. And he listened and he told my father, don't get this boy a teacher. Just buy him a guitar and put it in his hands. That's it. Okay, because that's how I learned. And I'm sure that that's how he will pick it up. I don't know whether my father was very happy with that advice, but he followed it. I was happiest with that advice. He just bought a guitar and gave it to me, and it was a love affair that has never ended. And what was the first band that you... Yeah, go ahead, yeah. You love love affairs, don't you? What, we'll come to the love affairs in a bit, but what was the first band? <laughs> the first band was called... I wanted to call it Billy the Kid and his rangers because I wanted to be a cowboy. That was my first and biggest ambition in life, by the way. No, before that, I wanted to be a taxi driver because a taxi driver got to drive a car, you see, and the whole day long, wow, that's all I wanted to do. Uh, but by the time I was eight or 10, I wanted to be a cowboy and I wanted a horse to go to school and tie him to the cycle stand. And after classes, when I came down, he would be happy and <laughs> he would neigh and raise his front legs and, uh, and we would ride back home in glory after classes. But that never happened. So I formed this band and we used to dress as cowboys and the girls in the group, there was one girl I think who sang. So she used to dress as a cowgirl. So we called ourselves Billy the Kid and his Rangers. And from there, you actually set up a second band and you had this great reunion not so long ago, a couple of years ago, where everybody gathered, barring Alessandro. And tell us what happened with him. He was in many ways your soulmate. And then unfortunately, he sort of went down the tube with, with drink. Yes. Alessandro was a, a soulmate, as you said. And he played the guitar and sang beautifully. He had come from Daman. His whole family had uh, moved to Goa from Daman. And uh, when I asked him to join the group, I sensed, you know, even at that very young age, I sensed that there would be friction between him and me. But I also knew that there would be some fantastic uh, combustion between him and me, musical combustion. All these things, as children, okay, you don't, you don't know these words yet. You don't know these feelings yet, but you sense them. And sure enough, on stage, we were, okay, nobody knew the word improvisation in Goa. Nobody knew what improvisation was. Whenever we sang a song, we copied it from beginning till the end, exactly like the record. 
And the more you sounded like the record, the better you were supposed to be. A lot of musicians still believe, believe that. Uh, they forget that something called Xerox has already been invented a long time ago. And uh, in the middle of singing La Bamba, I don't know what happened to Alessandra and me. You know, we just couldn't stop that song. You know, the song has that passage which goes, ah, and then, la, 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 bamba. and every time that we went slow, we went into the, ah, and it just wouldn't stop. It was going on and on, and we kept on improvising, improvising, and every time it was different. The audience also didn't know what was happening, but they knew there was something special that was happening. They were clapping their hands, even the people in the front wearing suits, we were clapping their hands in Goa. And of course the youth at the back was going absolutely wild. And on the next day, uh, a very staid uh, journalist, his headlines, his headline on the newspaper said, Remu e Alexandre La Bambaro in Portuguese. He, he just created a verb out of, out of La Bamba. In English, it wouldn't sound the same. Remo and Alexandre Lambabad. Lam, la bambad. It, it just doesn't, I mean, you can't translate it. In Portuguese, it sounded very nice. And then, unfortunately, there were tensions between him and me. I don't want to go into those details. Hey, there are some things that the people should buy the book for. No? Absolutely. Yeah, let's not tell them everything, okay? <laughs> very, very spicy stories of what happened in Arashadarin. Promise you. But what was amazing, uh, Remo, in all of this, your musical journey continued to progress. And from Goa, you went off to uh, Bombay and you created, and I don't know whether you all know, so he created his first album, which he then distributed and he recorded all of it on a cassette and he played every instrument. Oh, that was much, much later. First, I went to Bombay to study architecture, then I came back. And I went to Europe and I hitchhiked around for two and a half years and I came back from there and that's when I did this, what you, you told me about. Uh, yes, I recorded the first album on a four track cassette tape recorder on which I played every instrument and sang every voice. And finally, I was able to put all those songs which I'd composed on just an acoustic guitar and, and voice into, I mean, I was gonna, I was able to to give them all the backing which I always heard in my mind, you know, with the different tracks. I was able to put drums, bass, harmonies, a lead guitar, and uh, it was wonderful. But uh, I had approached record companies in Bombay at that time, and they said, you give us Hindi disco. You know, Hindi disco was a big thing then. And we'll give you a contract right now. But English, songs by an Indian just won't work. And Hindi disco was a big thing, uh, you know, Bidus, Kurbani. So if you had the Rotatoms going that was the thing, the music. Uh, and I knew that they were wrong, you know. They owned record companies, but they didn't know music. They didn't know the people's choices and tastes, really. My songs were in English, but they were not wannabe American, wannabe British English with fake accents and stuff. My songs were about India. There was a song about the way the telephones worked in India, or rather didn't work in India at that time, uh, about the holes in our roads, 
in Goa, especially a, a song called Rock and Road, because driving down the road was like rocking with your with your car, you know. So I wrote Rock and Road, and uh, Are you sleeping? Are you sleeping, Mister Minister? Uh, a lullaby for the ministers because they're always sleeping. They only wake up once a year. Used to wake up once a year. No, once in five years. Sorry for elections. Uh, so all the songs were not really wannabe American songs. They were you know, very topical about what was happening in Goa, in India. And I knew that the record companies were wrong. So I went ahead and recorded them at home. I distributed them on my yellow scooter, which I had at that time, to all the record shops. And it turned out to be the, the highest selling album in Goa. And uh, two of those copies, thank you. Yes. And two of those copies were picked up by one copy by Sham Benegal, the great film director who my, whose first film I saw when I was in college and I fell in love with his cinema and with art cinema. I didn't even know coming from Goa that art cinema existed in India. All I knew was the masala films, which I didn't much care for. So I fell in love with Sham Benegal's films and I fell in love with Shaban Azmi. Uh, so when he called and asked me to do music for his next film, I was like over the moon. And the other important cassette that was bought was by Irgul Anand, who asked me to do the music for Jalva. So Trikal and Jalva were really two blockbusters in their own fields, one in, in the art, art film genre, the other one in the masala genre. And, uh, and they really helped to catapult me at that time. You know, you were talking about um, uh, uh, minister and sleeping and some of these political songs. There was this wonderful story that he tells us in the book about how he wrote a song and he sang on the occasion of Rahul Gandhi and Sonia Gandhi coming uh, to Goa. And tell us what happened after that and then all of the controversy and their reaction to the controversy. Sorry. Oh, it was not Rahul and Sonia. Oh, sorry, was, Rajiv. Uh, it was... Uh, Sonia and, and Rajiv, they were coming to Goa to inaugurate something and uh, the government of Goa re reluctantly asked me to, to perform that evening. And they asked me to give a solemn promise that I would not upset Rajiv Gandhi. And I promised them, I crossed my, because they knew my penchant for being outspoken in front of ministers and all people, all the all the people in power, authorities. So I crossed my heart, hoped to die, and promised them that I would not upset Rajiv Gandhi. And I sang this song, inviting Rajiv Gandhi down to Goa every year, not just every six years, but every six months, every month. In fact, the song says every month. And I told him honestly that I was not inviting him out of love and affection. But because every time he came down, the Goa government repaired some roads, painted some buildings and stuff. So I did not upset Rajiv Gandhi, right? I upset the, I upset the government of Goa. And, uh, and then led, you know, that led to another huge controversy because there was an editor, a newspaper editor, <laughs> the owner of the newspapers of that newspaper had a bone to pick with me. And because again, because of another song I had written about the newspaper's policies. So he kept persecuting me in his newspaper every day. And you know, if the people read 
something against a person every day, they end up believing it. Believe it or not, I've, I had seen that newspaper destroy the careers of a couple of politicians who didn't go with the, the donor's uh, ideals. And uh, at the end of two weeks or three weeks of persecution by that newspaper, you know, where they would not publish any letter which was in my favor, but only things against me, I just took a chance and I took the cuttings and I sent them to the Prime Minister of India, Mr. Rajiv Gandhi, without knowing whether it would even reach him, you know, reach his hands. So two weeks later, there was a letter from the Prime Minister of India at my doorstep with the official seal of the Prime Minister. And the letter said, uh, Sonia and I loved your song. There was nothing wrong with it. Oh yeah, he kept attacking me in the newspaper saying that I had uh, insulted Goan culture. A very abstract thing like that, you know. So Rajiv Gandhi said, we loved your song. And as long as you are true to your art, you know, just go on, we'll go for it. And at that time, no, no minister, the government, you know, did not even acknowledge the existence of pop, of rock, of anything besides uh, Indian classical and Indian folk music. The only music that represented India in uh, international festivals, for example, was classical and folk. And therefore, the fact that a young prime minister wrote to a rock musician appealed to the nation's imagination and uh, and this editor had only had only brought out his uh, his you know tirade against me in his newspaper in his little newspaper in goa but the fact that rajiv had written to me was carried by most newspapers all over india uh, some of the biggest magazines in india so without meaning to you know this editor actually helped me up in my in my career. You, you talked about Rajiv saying you had to be true to your heart. And in fact, you were. And you continued to write fairly uh, political songs about the political situation. You looked at AIDS. You looked at uh, the need to have safe sex. You, you wrote such wonderful original music. Tell us about that world that you, that you sort of occupied at that point. And what was your a sort of state of being, uh, you know, because you were you were in many ways an activist, singer, songwriter. Yes, I became one actually. I uh, until the time when I came back from Europe, all if not most, all of all, if not all, most of my songs were love songs about relationships. But when I came back from Europe, I saw the changes taking place in Goa. It's like you know when you see somebody every day of your life. You don't notice the few wrinkles slowly growing. You know, you're seeing the person every day, but you see the person after two years, after five years, and suddenly you see all those wrinkles. And so that's the first time that I saw ugly buildings coming up in rice fields. There were rice fields yesterday. Today they're being covered illegally. Yesterday there was a beach, and now there's a huge high rise on the beach built by the government. And things like that, you know, happening, and that is what made me change from love songs to politically engaged uh, songs and socio-political, I call them. 
because none of my song ever took sides. Even if I wrote about corruption, I never accused any one politician, a politician of being corrupt. So whoever stood up and took exception to my song would be accepting that he's the corrupt one. And nobody did. Nobody did that. And how long did that phase last? Because you then looked at the anti-corruption movement. That was also something that you became very involved in. Yes. This feedback is not from all mics. Is it's, it? it's from it's the, the sound check going on on the okay. front lawn. Okay. I'm sorry, your question? I, I said, how long did this phase uh, last? Because you also started writing about anti-corruption and you were yes. very much part of the Anna Hazare movement uh, in its early inception years. It lasted until I felt that just writing and, uh, and complaining about our authorities was not enough, that it was finally our people who were to blame. I realized that at one time, that the people were not ready to do anything to really change the scene. You know, I realized that it was because corruption had reached such, had made such inroads that people were scared if, uh, if an honest politician came to power, because an honest politician would force them to demolish the illegal structure that they had built. He would disconnect the, the illegal electricity connection that he had acquired. And so nobody really wanted an honest politician in, Goa, in India anymore, at least in Goa. They wanted somebody whom they could pay and who would get the job done. And that I felt highly disappointed when I realized that about our people, you know, instead of uh, the authorities, it was the people. And uh, yeah, that's when I think I stopped writing socio-political songs and I went into my own trip, my own song. Coming back to uh, music, again, you were one of the first people to make Goan music so incredibly accessible. Your two big Goan albums went on to break every record possible and had a golden uh, disc. Tell us a little bit about how that happened, how you were able to make this Goan music that we all think now is part of our culture and tradition. How did you make it accessible? I don't know. I just know that my father loved Goan music. I know that I loved Goan music. I'd grown up to it. I knew, for example, that uh, Raj Kapoor or whoever had come down to Goa and learned the tune Bobby and had made a packet out of it without any of it going into Goan pockets. And uh, I knew the power of Goan music, but as all musics, they, they cannot really be appreciated in a, in a wider scale, if, if it's not played, I guess, in a, in a style and in the rhythm, which is appealing to everybody. In, a, in the same way that, that you know, Shakespeare's English may not be appealing to, to the man in the street, to, to the common English speaker. But if you translate, or if you transliterate or whatever it's called, his poetry, into, into normal English, the, the English which is normal today, then they would appreciate his, his plays so much better. They would be so much more accessible to the people. 
and maybe all those things made me record Goan music in a way which we could all identify with and dance to, you know, because Goan music has a lot of power to make you dance and the tunes are so catchy and it's a, it's a treasure trove of, uh, of, of culture. So many other states in India had done that, you know, Bangra especially, uh, Punjab had, had had an explosion and deservedly so. The Bangra has such a fantastic beat. They had an electronic drum beat to it, a heavy bass to it, and that was it. Goan music didn't have such a heavy beat, so I gave it a heavy beat and the drum beat and the bass. And uh, not only music from Goa, but also music from Daman. You know, Maria Pitashe is from Daman. Goa, Goa, Daman, and Diu were Portuguese colonies, as you know. And uh, yeah, it was music coming from my roots. We're running out of time. I'm going to open it up to the audience in a second. Two difficult questions. There was heartbreak in this book and you talk about it. And the second question, and I mean, tell us a little bit about that, about your state of being, the heartbreak, the anguish. And also within that, tell us in your head, are you Portuguese or are you Indian? Uh, I don't want my OCI revoked, okay? <laughs> so don't get me into trouble, Sanjay. Uh, uh, we will ask uh, Lakshmi Puri to intervene in that matter. <laughs> but I shall answer that. Uh, the heartbreak, I think the one you're referring to is when, when, my, when four members of my band died in a car crash. They had, the, the oldest one had been with me for 12 years, the next one for 10 years, one guy for eight years. So they were family, you know, they were not just band members or, uh, or work associates. Uh, they were brothers in music. And we did a really good concert at the IIT Kanpur. And on the next day, when driving back to, to for the airport, the city close by. Lucknow. Lucknow for, the, you know, for our flights. Their car met with a head-on collision with, a, with an ST bus, with a bus that was with a government bus that was coming in the opposite direction. That was flying because it was coming empty. It was probably going for repairs. The repairs were, were probably for the brakes. It was flying on the highway and uh, a head-on collision. Four guys dead plus driver. And the only survivor was the guy who had just joined us uh, a year before that. And, uh, and he survived because being the new member, the other members had put him right at the back of the sumo. So he got spat out of the car and he banged his head on the tarmac. So he was in coma for almost two months. Nobody knew whether he was going to survive or not either, but he did. And uh, I mean, just losing four of your bandmates, soulmates is bad enough. But the worst thing is out of those four families, two of the families blamed me. How do you blame anybody for a car accident, you know, it's except the drivers or the traffic cops who don't do their duty? Uh, and having to deal with all that at the same time was traumatic, was, I didn't know whether I was coming or going, I was waking up 
with my with my pillow completely flooded with tears and uh, i was a wreck i was a wreck and uh, it's a miracle that i didn't i didn't end up an alcoholic or a drug addict or worse than that uh, a religious fanatic of some sort you know uh, but i did survive and uh, for a year you didn't play for a year year and a half you yes. didn't do any music you didn't play i refused to form another band i could not i could not even approach a, a, a musical instrument it hurt me physically it hurt me music the thing that i loved most hurt me physically listening to it hurt me physically because my band was associated with it and uh, the drummer who survived he kept calling me and telling me we must form another band we must form another band and i told him no no way i don't want to form another band then finally to get rid of him i told him uh, listen you find the band members i knew that he would never be able to find any band members or i thought so because this band had grown organically and it had grown into a band from a duo to a trio uh, to a band over years and i knew how difficult it was to find the right guys my drummer calls me up in a week and he says i found guys already i said no oh, no i've got to now i've got to listen i've got to give him the the chance of a rehearsal and at that rehearsal i'll say sorry no it's not working out but they turned up at the rehearsal and they knew all the songs and they played them impeccably so in in a couple of hours i had a band the previous band took me years to form and this one was formed in a couple of hours i could not believe it after that i was sitting in my studio i have a window which overlooks the the, the sky and the coconut the trees rice. you know and i was just sitting there marveling at the fact that i had a band and suddenly i saw my old band members in the in, in the sky no i was not hallucinating i imagined them in my mind uh you know smiling at me and winking at me and i knew that i just knew you know there are some things which you can't explain but you know inside you you don't need to prove them to anybody or explain them to anybody you know them for yourself i knew that it's that it had been they who had orchestrated this band to come together in a couple of hours you know and i and, and i cried that day and i cried in tears of joy that day after all the all the tears of you know which i told you about which i was crying earlier you know tears of joy and gratitude to my old band and that's how thank you very much thank you tears of joy and gratitude i'm going to open it up to a couple of questions and then i'm going to end with requesting remo and we've been able to get him a guitar uh, to give us a short sweet little performance or maybe a question or two uh, yeah and one here in front and please keep it really short and crisp so that we can get him to sing and can i request uh, manu can i request you all to tell them to keep the uh, sound check down for this period when we're doing the music go ahead hello uh, it's interesting uh, remo that uh, we grew up with hindi music hindi music you know with saigal singing a song and uh, there was a harmonium and there was a tabla and maybe one violin or two violins accompanying him and then this is just to pay our gratitude 
to the Goanese music because there came a quality change in the nature of music when you, when you had the arrangers coming down into Delhi, into Mumbai, and then making these 80-piece, 70-piece orchestras, and uh, just contrary to what you said, and these orchestras were possible only because everyone knew how to write notes on the music. Would you like to comment on this? Kersi Lord and people that changed the quality of Hindi music, uh, Hindi film music particularly. By, by uh, writing, do you saying, have any comment on that? Yes, my comment is that if you want everybody to 80 people to play something that you want them to play, then obviously you've got to you've you got to write. But you know, what I said earlier remains. It doesn't mean that all those 80 people are able to play music out of their own hearts. It just proves that they can write what is written down, and nobody has denied that. It's like getting somebody to read. A passage from a book. Eighty people to read a passage from a book together. It just it just proves that they know how to read. It doesn't prove that they know how to create a passage like that. So in no way does what you say you know, conflict with with what I said earlier. So, Remo, uh, yes. So Remo, very touching. But I have a question for you. A little closer, please. All of this is going live. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, at the time of Indian independence, I doubt if there were too many eight-year-olds who were idolizing Britain or thinking of it as a golden land. Yet Portugal. Were, Portugal. Portugal, sorry, Britain. No, no, I said in India, in India, hardly anybody would be idolizing or glorifying Britain. But as an eight-year-old, at the time of uh, Goanese independence, you thought Portugal was the land of milk and honey and was the ideal land. What was the difference? How could things be so different i don't really know about the youth in the other places in india but for sure I, I, i'm sure that they did i'm sure that they did uh, you know uh, idealize the land of the colonizers the land of the so-called masters i'm sure they did uh, how do you know that that they did not do that at that time because uh, Anything that came from uh, England, even for years after that, after importation stopped, for example, anything that came from England or from, from Europe was grabbed at, was uh, bought, was, you know, always, always put at a premium, the goods, the goods already. And the people, well, they were, uh, you know, please don't think that I was justifying or even uh, propagating, you know, saying, yeah, or even propagating colonization. Not at all. Not at all. I know just how wrong colonization is. Totally, totally, totally wrong. It's the biggest crime. One of the biggest crimes that humanity has committed against itself. I'm just saying, you know what? It did. It did to us, and. Uh, and I think it was all over, all over the country. I think, uh, of course, there were people who were awakened and who knew that they had to rebel against this foreign power, and they did. But uh, it doesn't change the fact that most of the people idealized this. Uh, and I don't know really about the rest of the country. I was talking about Goa. And yeah, because don't forget, 
that the British were in the rest of India for 150 years only. Whereas the Portuguese were in Goa for 451 years. Now that's a lot of generations, a lot of generations. That's a, a, a period that is long enough to erase a lot of mentalities, a lot of beliefs, a lot of, and the Portuguese intermingled. You know, the British in the rest of India, they had signs on uh, railway carriages saying dogs and Indians not allowed. Intermingling was not uh, encouraged or even allowed. Whereas the Portuguese didn't have that kind of a racism really. Okay, they were the masters, of course they were the masters. When I say masters, I mean the colonial masters. Through hook or by crook, they managed to turn their uh, trading in the contracts into ownership and, uh, and, and they became the masters. But uh, they intermingled in a much more easy way. They intermarried you know, much more easily. And uh, there wasn't this hatred against them. There wasn't any, uh, you know, it was, I think it was more of a, of course, I, I mean, I don't know whether you were alive. I mean, you, you, you seem too young to have known the, colon, the colonized years and, and the kind of mentality that it created and that it, uh, it, it, it forced upon the, upon the colonized people all over the world. You know, you always looked at it as, wow. I'm going to ask, uh, do we want him to play or don't we want him to play? Come on. Remo, will you, will you play for us? I'd ask the well. sound man for a cable for my guitar. Is it possible? A jack-to-jack -jack cable? Jack-to-jack -jack cable, yes. And a stand for the mic. Understand? I'm going to get off the stage just to say this is really going to be signing after this. Thank you to all of you and to none other and Remo Fernandez, the great musician. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Remo, back to you. Sanjay, I, can say, I can't say what a pleasure it was being in conversation with you. Like I said, I never expected to visit a literary festival as an author, and here I am. I'm still laughing at it. And I can't believe that I was in conversation with one of the three geniuses behind the Jaipur Literature Festival. It's an honor beyond uh, expectation, Sanjay. Thank you very much. When I, when I finished writing the autobiography, uh, the man who edited it for me from the publishing house, uh, HarperCollins, asked me to write a song about writing the autobiography. 
And I said, come on, I can't do that. First of all, I can't write a song on command, you know, on, on, on request. I have to feel it from inside, otherwise I can't. But strangely enough, on the very next day, after I finished writing it, writing the autobiography, the song came to mind. And I wrote it and I recorded it. And today, that editor who suggested it in the first place is right here in the audience, although he's not feeling very well today. And I'd like you to give a big hand to Dayan Mitra from HarperCollins. And I'd like you to give a very big hand, please, to my amazing literary agent, Himali Sodhi, who's also here. Can I have a better sound on the guitar, please? Some more bass, it's sounding very tinny and some reverb on the voice and on the guitar. How it's sounding, is it? The guitar is too loud now. Please balance the voice and the guitar properly. I can't hear my voice coming from this speaker. Only the only the the guitar and some reverb. You have not given me reverb. Can you give me some reverb, please?
Thank you very much. Thank you. Listen, I hope I'm not imposing on you. I hope I'm not imposing on you, but for but to say thank you for listening to a singer talk for so long. I'd like to sing a few verses from my songs, you know, a little better, okay? I think the guitar is still too loud. Shan to have us a Jamama, Anion Santatuka, Undram This is a Goan folk song. And in Goa, we normally finish all our parties with this song. And in Goa, when we sing this song at the end, nobody but nobody remains sitting down like this and like that everybody claps their hands and sings along two three yeah yeah my yeah 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 beautiful yeah yeah you're a lovely audience yeah yeah my yeah yeah Anion Santatuka, Undram Mujamama, Anion Santatuka, Anima Zoricha Pila Lagi, Fedumandi Naka, Anima Zoricha Pila Lagi, Fedumandi, everybody, Yaya Maya, Yaya Maya, yeah, I can't hear you. Beautiful. Come on. Yeah, yeah, my last time. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah, yeah. 
A big hand. The amazing hand Remo Fernandez. A big hand to GLF. A big hand to Sanjoy. A big hand to Harper Collins. And thank you. Vishwanath is here. The CEO of Harper Collins himself is here. And I'd like you to give a very big, a very special hand for him, please. Thank you very much. I was nervous today because I've, I've been facing an audience with my guitar in hand for the last, I won't tell you how many years, but uh, it's the first time that I faced an audience, like I told you, as an author, we're just talking, and I was a bit nervous. Thank you for receiving me so beautifully, making me feel so much at home. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes. <laughs>